Greetings, and thank you for checking out this sermon from Kingdom Life Community Church in Morrison, Illinois. If you'd like more information about our church, go to kingdomlife.global. And now, here is the sermon from our pastor, Steve Harmon. I'm a child of God. The Father loves me. The Father wants me. The Father... Yeah, he does. I am his, he is mine, because of that, the past won't haunt me, the future doesn't scare me, because in his presence is where I live. Amen. Oh, look, there it is. No, just kidding. All right. Cheryl Green, hi, if you're out there watching. I got the book, and uh, I'm going to be going through it. Thank you for that. Um, she's watching online, so if you turned around to look, you'd have to say hi to the camera. Gary, love you, man. I'm hoping to get to come and see you soon, um, so I'll give you a call. All right. Open your Bibles, if you would, to uh, the book of Nehemiah. And so uh, in, in, in going through and, uh, you know, what I'm going to, you know, speak next and, you know, where it's God leading and stuff like that uh, after Ephesians, uh, I felt um, the book of Nehemiah kind of heavy on my heart. And the reason uh, the book of Nehemiah is, yes, it's, it's uh, you know, it's building and all that stuff, but we're not doing a building project, so it's not because of that. Um, but Nehemiah was on my heart because I felt the Lord speak to me that there are going to be similarities between the external the, the walls that are built around Jerusalem and the walls that sometimes are around our heart. And so there are some principles there that, that can transfer from uh, what has happened back here into how and what we're living today. How many know that usually in your mind you think of walls around your heart as a negative thing, right? Well, the Lord is a strong tower, <laughs> and the Lord uh, has walls in and of himself, and the Lord's walls are about uh, protection, strength, and safety, right? And so the walls of the enemy are usually when he gets a foothold into our life, and because he gets a foothold, he gets a foothold into our, our hearts, or he gets a foothold into our mind, and then because we allow it to stay there, he begins to build uh, things, walls in our life around unsurrendered areas of our heart. And as he begins to do that, then there's dark places, either here or here or both. And so uh, it, it's hard to kind of tear those walls down them yourself because there's a, a level of vulnerability that goes with that, right, to surrender to the Lord. You're trusting him, right, with whatever you've walled off. And sometimes those things can happen through tragedies in your life. Sometimes those things are, are, are traumas that are left over. You know, we as a nation and as a world have experienced a level of trauma being in a pandemic, whether you think it's the worst thing that has ever happened in your life or you don't think it's a big deal, regardless, uh, the issue is, is that it has caused uh, some trauma, it has caused some heaviness, it has caused some fear into the entire world. And those of us who are believers, although we're not governed by fear, we're still living in a world where there's fear around us. And so, and we're, we're, we're around people where, uh, that have gone through, you know, trauma. <clears throat> 
you know, not being able to go out and things shutting down was a pretty serious thing that we went through. And I know that we're not hearing much about COVID because there's a war going on. It's a reality that we live with, but it's not something that we should be governed by or live in fear with the rest of our lives. You take your precautions, you do what you need to do, but you don't live in fear, okay? Fear is a, is, is a, a way that the enemy gets in, and he doesn't just leave you at whether you wear a mask or not. He, he leaves you paralyzed <laughs> of doing anything. And he causes a lot of turmoil, and he, he tries to build trauma into your life. And so we're, we're dealing with that a little bit, which is why I'm looking forward to April. I believe it's 7th, starting on the, April 7th, where we're going to have Dr. Mike Hutchins come, who has a Ph.D., and, and uh, he deals with spe- specifically in the area of trauma. And he also does leadership, but I've asked him to come and, and, do, uh, and speak about trauma. And he has PTSD and, and all these things. And so, you know, we've, we've since 2001, roughly or so, or 2002, we've, we've been in a long war that we've just pulled out of, right? And so there's, there's a lot of things there's, that are going on in the hearts and minds of people that are suffering. And we want to bring them... Uh, hopefully some peace and so that comes through ministry of God's word and God's spirit because um, God is, can do it. And uh, maybe Curtis, at some point, you could give your testimony about that. Maybe that'd be a good idea. Okay. Uh, so we're talking about Nehemiah because there's a level of vulnerability that's going on with the people of Jerusalem. And let me just get you the spitball, roughly, the 5,000-foot version of what is going on here. Nehemiah is going to be the last return of a group of people that are coming back from exile. So you remember what happened. Uh, Israel, bad, uh, never really had a good king since the split from Judah. And so they always did... They're always doing horrible things, right? So Israel gets, boom, they're taken away into captivity. And, and all of a sudden, uh, later on down the road, Judah, who had good kings and bad kings, a few good kings, you know, that did some right things. But inevitably, the bad kings won out and the people's hearts went with Baal and all that kind of stuff. So all of a sudden, old Nebi comes knocking on the door, uh, tears down uh, the walls, laid siege to the city, and killed a bunch of people and took the best and the brightest that he could and drew them to be like a servant class of people in uh, Babylon, okay? So now you all know all you need to know about the Old Testament. Um, And so where we're picking up right now is from that, there are prophecies that Isaiah and Jeremiah are talking about, about the time that's coming that's going to be an end of their, um, you know, uh, occupation. It's going to be an end of them, you know, being taken away, that there's coming a time where they're going to return to Jerusalem, right? There's going to be a time of restoration that, that's going to happen. And so uh, Zerubbabel led a group. Ezra, which is right before Nehemiah, has led a group. And then Nehemiah is going to be the last that, that's going to take off. And so they're all doing some specific things in their return, you're right? Uh, governmental things, Ezra, temple things, and stuff like that. And, and Nehemiah is going to be the last guy. And Nehemiah, Nehemiah is, is going to come in and, and do a a whole lot of good stuff. And so let's, let's get to um, the beginning of Nehemiah and, and work this through. So uh, during the month of Chislev in the 20th year when I was at the fortress of the city of Susa, Hannah and I, one of my brothers, arrived with men from Judah and I questioned him about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived in exile. Now listen, I, I, I don't believe he's talking about the original exile, okay? Because that's going to be hundreds of years back, or not hundreds, but it's going to be like 
years and years and back. I don't think he's talking about the original exile there. What he's talking about is that uh, Zerubbabel had went, um, uh, Ezra had went, and what we really believe happened that Ezra got a little happy and enthusiastic about some things, and he had all the permission that he needed to rebuild the temple. If you read uh, Ezra, Artaxerxes, and everybody, it's like, give them everything they need, rebuild their temple. And there's, there's a whole lot of reasons that that's going on. One is that Artaxerxes and the kings have been in some, some pretty heavy and long-lasting ground wars with Egypt during that time. And, and some other things that are going on. And so it, very possibly he's looking for some type of allies, you know. And so he puts those, those rebellions out, but, you know, it, it, it takes time and money and resources. And every time you've been through a war, you've got to recover from those things. And so um, in, in the world's point of view, he's probably thinking allies and, and, and do what I need. But in the reality, we know that God is sovereign over that and is, is moving his people back to Jerusalem. And so we, what we kind of, you know, believe is that when Ezra went back and he was rebuilding the temple, that they got a little excited and started on walls, and they weren't supposed to. So the enemies that were coming against them, you know, that come against everybody, you know, we all have enemies, spiritual mostly, uh, is that they came and king said, hey, they're rebuilding the walls. That's not supposed to happen. So Artaxerxes sent and gave them papers, and they went and crush the walls again and burn them and stuff like that. And so what's happening is Nehemiah's like, hey, how's it going with the brethren back there? Why would Nehemiah know anything about this? Because he's right there by the king. And so what we believe is happening here is that he's asking about what happened with the last thing. The gates are burned and stuff. And so he, Hananoi answers him and says, man, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace and Jerusalem wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned. Now they've already would have known that from the first exile when Nebuchadnezzar comes and all that kind of stuff because it happened a long time ago and a lot of them left. And so this is probably about something that happened during Ezra's time. And so this makes a lot of sense when you see some of the, the scriptures that are coming on behalf of that. So the first thing we hear after he gets this report, right, uh, is the burden. The first thing that happens, is because it's not what Nehemiah wanted to hear, Nobody wants to hear about, the Ukrainians are not excited about the destruction that's going on in their land, right? Nobody is excited about that. And so Nehemiah is, is wounded. He's carrying a burden about his nation, right? And so the first thing he does, the first thing he does, he says, when I heard these things, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before God of heaven. And I said, This kind of lays a little heavy on my heart because I don't know how many of us recognize in our own, whether it be our own hearts or whether it be in the culture that we live in, um, the heaviness of where we're at in time and in, with our culture. Um, I'm not trying to be a naysayer. I'm not. But we have to look at things in the reality and and. and it's so interesting that we touched a little bit in your class. And by the way, people, I want to encourage you. You, you got to come to Sunday school because there's some rich stuff that's happening in the adult class. And I'm just, I just challenge you in a loving way, come and receive some of that. It's good stuff, okay? And if you have children and you're not currently coming, hey, come on. I don't think in this time you can never get enough Jesus, Right? Our culture has drifted, and you know when I grew up, and some of you, uh, probably even more than me, 
because you're older than me. Um, remember that in, in my family, life circled around, revolved around the church, right? Today, the church circles around travel teams and all this different kinds of stuff. And I am not putting any, any kind of stuff on people who, who have athletes. I'm not saying that. I'm not talking about, you know, just certain individuals. I'm talking about the culture of how we've shifted, okay? And so I just remember in the 90s, man, uh, or excuse me, 90s, <laughs> sorry, 70s and 80s. I'm really young now. 70s and 80s, that we're, as towards, that's towards the end of that period. I, I grew up in the holiness movement, which turned out to be the legalistic movement towards the end. That's just things that happened. But, but we revolved around the church. So we were in there Wednesday night. We were in there Sunday morning, and we were in there Sunday night, right? I never thought anything else about it. I never thought it was weird at all. As a matter of fact, when I came back to Jesus in 97, I was struggling to find a church that did Sunday night service. I couldn't find one. And I was like, what? That seems weird to me, but okay. And uh, so I, I found a church and I began to grow and whatever, but I, the culture had shifted and, and, and church was no longer the center, port, center point of, of pe- fam- families' lives revolving around it. It became a, a, a pastime <laughs> or a hobby or a thing to do or it's a good hey church i remember watching mash and frank burns and hot lips right and there was the, the new preacher that was over uh uh father mulcahy right and uh, he was a bishop there and they're you know everybody came for father mulcahy and they're shaking his hand he's like uh hey he's talking about church he goes oh we love church it's a great place to kill an hour <laughs> and unfortunately many people maybe kind of think that I just, it, church has become like an obligation or a duty instead of the joy of coming and, and being with God's people. And I think, you know, a lot of times when we keep it as a, jo- as a duty and an obligation, we miss out on the organic relationships don't develop in obligation and duty. They don't, they don't develop there or they're superficial. But when you understand that the church is, is really started out not really about buildings, it started out in people's homes, and it was about being in relationship. And, and listen, they ate together, and they ate together every day. So they didn't have church on one point. They, it, was a, it was a living organism. He's like, well, Steve, yeah, that, that's great. The, what I'm saying to you is that something has shifted from 2,000 years ago to today, and it's not technology. It's the heart of what we believe, at the, at the center of it is, is, is what church really is. And this goes all the way back, it goes all the way back to Constantine, and I won't bore you with that stuff, but at about, right about that time, the church became civilized, and when she became civilized, she became concerned about buildings, and she became a whole lot more concerned about uh, rights, and, you know, re- became religious, and And a lot of the relationships seem to ooze out of it. So the worst thing that can happen to a church or a people is they become civilized in the sense of, well, this is how we do stuff. You know, we lived through through the 70s and 80s, and back then you didn't go to church without a tie. If you did, they attached that to your holiness. (laughs) Yeah? And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, and, and that's what I grew up in, so that's what I thought. And so, but I rebelled against it as you can see, not really rebelled against it, but just, just realizing that, you know, the outer appearance has nothing to do with my relationship with Jesus. And, and most of the churches today would not let a long-haired, bearded hippie guy in a robe come into their sanctuary. 
And so the church that became civilized is the church that became religious and be started talking about obligation and duty and lost her relationship. And I fear sometimes some of them have lost their relationship with the, the great shepherd. It's a dangerous thing. I think Nehemiah somewhat understands this because of what has happened. And so when he heard this, you know, he understands that there's prophecies that are out there. Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah. There's prophecies out there and and times of fulfillment that are going to come, but we're not seeing that yet. And he's asking, hey, what's going on back there? Oh, man, the walls are down, the the people are in disarray and all this kind of stuff. And so he hears this, and there's this burden that comes on his heart. And I'm wondering, as, as we're living in today, are there people that have a burden for their own nation? Because it seems like as the church got civilized, she stopped caring about the true heart of the nation of, of the United States of America. And so she, she gave up. She retreated over certain things. There was no one that would stand and take on and have a burden for the United States when it came to things like abortion, when it came to things like, because we never, oh, that's never going to happen. It happens when the church becomes religious and not relational and she comes back. The enemy doesn't, there is no such thing as a ceasefire between the enemy and, and us. None. We're calling for revival, and and we need it. But judgment first starts in the house of God. And so I'm wondering, I'm I'm looking, and I'm including myself in here, are there people that have that burden in their heart for their own nation to come and, and spend time in fasting and prayer and saying, God, we have sinned against you. And, and we're guilty because we've let it happen. And Nehemiah is sitting down there and he's weeping. He says, I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying for the God of heaven. And I said, and here's where this is incredible. I'm using the Holman Christian Standard Bible. And so... Uh, instead of Lord, it will say like Yahweh. So he says, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands, let your eyes be open and your ears attentive to your servant's prayer that I, now, that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. He says, I confess the sins we have committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. If you hear in that prayer, he's probably taking ownership for something he had no part in. But he's praying on behalf of, remember, this is why it gets interesting because Romans chapter 9 that you're getting into, what does Paul say? I, I wish that I were cut off for what? For my countrymen, my men of the flesh. So Paul's talking about the nation too. He's like, I, I long for them to come to Jesus. Nehemiah's like, I, I long for them to come and repent for the way we acted that led us into exile in the first place because if we get released, has our heart turned towards God? If God shows grace, 
Does that necessarily mean that our hearts have turned back toward him? And listen, we don't want to do these things, not because we're afraid you'll strike us with a lightning bolt, but because God, like David, when we do something wrong, we come to you and beg your forgiveness because we don't want anything to come. We don't want our sin to be between us, between you and me. So Nehemiah is weeping, praying, mourning on behalf of a nation, and he confesses the sins that we have committed. David in Psalm 51, against you and you only have I sinned. David understands that there's, there's really no separation between his personal sins as a king and, and, and the national because of who he's over. See, sin affects everything. You may think that the things that you do are, are, are just yours, but it doesn't. Sin is not something that just stays in the, the issue of your own scope. It, it fans out. It affects others. Nehemiah is praying, both I and my father's house of sin. We have acted corruptly towards you. We have not kept your commands, statuses, or ordinance that you gave your servant Moses. This is Leviticus, uh, I think 26, starting in verse 10 maybe, uh, that Moses, he's Moses. But I'll tell you, in, in Chronicles, Second Chronicles, when, when um, Solomon is giving his prayer, there, there's an interesting thing that happens there. And uh, let me just go there real quick. So I want to read you what he says. It's in uh, 2 Chronicles 6, starting in verse 36. He says, when they sin against you, for there's no one who doesn't sin. Now remember, Solomon is dedicating the temple, and this is a prayer. This is, you know, David had passed, Solomon's there, beautifying the temple. Now we're going to dedicate it, right? And he says, and, and Solomon has this prophetic prayer. It's interesting if you've ever, because it's, it's, it's as if the guy who, who has all wisdom understands the hearts of people and knows what's going to happen. And so he prays, when they sin against you, talking about the people, for there is no one who doesn't sin. This is what Solomon says. Uh, and you are angry with them and you hand them over to the enemy and, uh, and their captors deport them to a distant nearby country when they come to their senses in a land where they were deported and repent and petition you in their captor's land, saying, we have sinned and done wrong, we have been wicked. And when they return to you with their whole mind and heart in the land of their captivity, where they were taken captive, and when they pray in the direction of their land, now you understand Daniel, praying towards Jerusalem, and that you gave their ancestors and the city you have chosen and toward the temple I have built for your name. You may hear their prayer and petitions, your dwelling place, open up their calls, May you forgive your people who sinned against you. Now listen, there's some crucial things that he says in there when they return to you with all their mind and all their heart. Does that sound similar to some things Jesus would say in the New Testament? <laughs> Love the Lord your God with all your, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, right? And so as he's talking, and Solomon is saying, listen, you know, when they return to you with their heart and with their soul, right, when they're coming back, listen, they're not coming back to you just because they're not repentant, but they're just sorry you got caught and you're in trouble. You're, you're sorry about the circumstances that you're having to deal with. That, that's not repentance. Repentance is understanding that my sin has hurt the heart of God and things have happened. And, and repentance in the New Testament is metanoia, which means, listen, I'm changing my mind on this subject. I'm doing a reversal. This is what I thought, but I have changed 
my mind has changed, my heart has changed, and so I'm going in a different direction. I, I have changed. It's not like, hey, God, forgive me that I got caught, but still doing the same things that you always have done. That has never been the heart of repentance. And I have walked that out in my life as well, too, doing stupid stuff time and time and time again and saying, oh, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What I was sorry about was consequences. What I didn't understand was what I was doing to the relationship. Now, it's not like I've ruined my relationship forever with God. When my heart and my mind understand the true meaning of repentance, he's right there. He's never left you, but we have left him. And, and he's praying, and so Nehemiah is echoing these same things, like, you know, both uh, we have acted uh, corruptly towards you and not kept your commandments. He's talking about him and his fathers and descendants. He says, please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen my name to dwell. I think of the power of that. Because in the New Testament, it's no longer about the temple in Israel I hear my heart he's going to come back right and he's, he's going to dwell there I, I, I get that and when he reigns for a thousand years you know he'll, he'll be around there but the reality of it is it's folks that this body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit this when he comes to dwell there it's, it should be because he's already dwelling here we, we're already we're going to see him as he is when he comes, but we'll already know who he is from our heart because of the Holy Spirit that is within us. And so, as as today in, in the New Testament, we have to ask ourselves, <clears throat> we have to take inventory of of this temple, our spirit, our soul, and our body, the Holy Spirit, and our spirit in in connection with Him, but our soul which is what most people live by. It's their mind, their will, and their emotions, and their desires, and, and most of the culture lives like that. If it feels good, do it. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. All these different kinds of things. That's all soulishness that people have not placed under the rule of Almighty God. They have not allowed the truth of God to invade the soulish realms of, their, of themselves. And so they live by how they feel instead of living by the truth of what God has said. And so their temple becomes defiled. The temple becomes defiled. He says, please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and, and to that your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today and have compassion on him in the presence of this man. At the time, I was the king's cupbearer. So not only is he repenting on behalf, I'll tell you a little story. Think about a circle, okay? Put a circle in your mind. <laughs> Down the middle of it. Repent on one side, believe on the other, okay? So God breaks through in your life, which is called a Kairos moment. He just breaks through in time. You've all have probably had that happen. 
where God has, has broken through to, to communicate to you. And it could be because you're doing something. Usually a lot of times it's like, hey, you, you should change your behavior or what, and you get it. But it's not always negative. Sometimes it's very positive as well too. But he breaks through, right? And it's on that repent side. And you're like, hey, what, what is God saying to me? You know, what is this thing that's happening? And you, you, you think about this. You know, you begin to discuss this. And, and then you're like, what does God want me to do about this on the belief side of, of that circle? excuse me, on the repent side of that circle. And then the circle is just going clockwise, bop, bop, bop. On the belief side, he's like, okay, what is he asking me to do? Who's gonna hold me accountable? And then I'm gonna act on it. See, you don't have repent without believe. You don't just say, oh, I'm sorry I did that. There's a plan in motion that God is setting for you to act and, and go on behalf of the revelation that you've had. And so Nehemiah underst- is understanding this, maybe not in the idea of a learning circle, but he's understanding this, that listen, my repentance is going to require an action. I'll let you sit on that for a second. My repentance is going to require an action. My repentance is going to require me to process what God has said in my life. And listen, I'm not perfect. I'm looking at things from the past. I'm like, man, you know, I've repented for some stuff, but I've never acted on it. I've just said, God, I'm so sorry for the way I am. When God is not interested in me being sorry for the way I am and leaving it there, he's very excited that I've acknowledged what is there but he's also given me power to act on behalf and, and to, as I've changed my mind, I've changed my actions because I believe that his word and he are the truth of everything. And so Nehemiah, he, he writes this little, there's this little, at that time, I was the king's cupbearer. Oh, here comes the action. I've repented, I've prayed, I believe I've called for, excuse me for borrowing this from another book, for such a time as this. And now I'm going to put into motion what I believe God has called me to repent from nationally and individually and now go forth because the burden is on him. He's taken on the burden of a nation. A nation that is, their walls are, inter- are destroyed and their people are, are destroyed. There's not good things going on there. And Nehemiah being a cupbearer. Now listen, the cupbearer is not just the wine taster. That's a part of it. But it's not just the wine taster. Cupbearer would probably be in charge of the harem. And usually that's a eunuch, but that's, we don't know that to be the case for Nehemiah. And, and, and the cupbearer would also be the chief financial officer of the kingdom. And then the wine taster. Which makes a whole lot of sense when you understand that he's going to go before the king and he's going to have a plan of action. He knows what he needs. God has placed him in that position, has gifted him with uh, understanding and it gifted him with administration and he's, he's in charge of things. The king knows him by name. And so this is why we come to this in chapter 2. 
during the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, while wine was set before him, that I took the wine, I gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? So let me explain to you a little bit of why that's important. If the wine taster has anything on his face other than joy, the king is going to believe that someone is trying to poison him because they were all worried about being poisoned and somebody else taking over their throne. And so when a wine taster, a cupbearer, who's in charge of other things, but also in making sure the, the king is not going to po- get poisoned, is, has anything but utter joy looking upon his face, the king is going to say, okay, what's going on? Is somebody trying to kill me? What, what's going on? So that phrase of, oh, this is only depression. <laughs> this is only sadness of heart. Thank God there's no poison, right? He's like, thank God, it, you know, it's, it's, only, it's only depression. Why, why are you depressed in my presence? Aren't, you know, I'm just paraphrasing the king who is benevolent. I mean, this is what the king would think about himself. I'm, I'm a great king. I am Artaxerxes. I have all this stuff in my command. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all that plus a bag of chips. I am the author of all joy. I have spared you. I have given you all these good things. How dare you be sad in my presence? and there not be something wrong, right? This is why he's, he's afraid to go into him, you know. And uh, listen, there's always natural fear. Fear in and of itself is an emotion. So not all fear is bad, but there's paralyzing fear that comes from the enemy that's not from God. But listen, fear is good because if there's a fire sitting over there and I didn't understand what fear was, I would go and play in the fire and get burned. But there's a healthy emotion of fear that tells me like, hey, listen, if, if I let my child too close to that fire, she's going to get burned, and so I'm, I'm going to go pull her away. So there's, a, there's an emotion of fear that, that lets us know when things can be dangerous. Absolutely. Last night, the, I guess the sirens were going off in Morrison. We didn't hear them in the country. But, you know, you get those little buzzes on your phone that it's a severe tornado, and it's circling. There's, you know, rotation and all this different kind of stuff. And the power goes out. And the kids are concerned and all this different kind of stuff. And I'm like, ah, it's going to be okay. We're going to be fine. Why? Because I've been through a lot of storms in my life. I have a little bit of experience going through storms. Sometimes I wasn't smart. Hey, there's a tornado. Oh, let's go see. Right? I remember working in Jack's department store on Lincoln Way, and I was, I was the security manager at that time. And so they said, hey, tornadoes are coming from outside Clinton. <laughs> Unalarm the roof. I'm going up. So I go up to the top of the roof, and I'm just, I'm looking, you know, for rotation and all this different kinds of stuff. And I come back down, and John McGee is like, uh, I don't think I'm ever going to let you do that again. <laughs> okay, probably wise. But as you grow and mature, you understand that you understand that there's some storms that are serious and there's some things that are just thunderstorms. But if you're a little child, you, you, you don't really know that. This, this is why these guys are in a boat with Jesus, right? And, and they understand that in a boat, if, if sailors are scared, right, then the storm is a pretty big storm. What they forgot is that there is purpose, that a storm was never going to take Jesus out. He didn't come to earth to die on a boat, and so they're, because they don't understand that, they're, they're afraid and affected by, what is, by circumstances instead of living by truth of what Jesus said. 
And I think that happens in the church a lot as well. We get fearful, so fearful about things of circumstances that are outside, understanding that if we understand what his word says, we know where it's going to go, and we know that that's not really a big storm, and so we're going to be okay. Because I've been through this before. Let me show you how. And so with, you know, with children, they're like worried. The lights are flickering. What's going to happen? I'm, I'm afraid of this. I'm afraid of that. You don't have to be afraid. Come on. Climb up in bed or whatever and this, that, and the other. Hold them tight. Even Maya, the old lab, hates thunder, shaking visibly like this because of the crashes. I'm like, come on, come on, Maya. Get up in the bed. Hug her a little bit. I mean, the entire bed is vibrating from Maya. <laughs> this, is, this is a dog that I left out when I first got her and a storm came and she ripped the molding around the door. She crushed the handle with her mouth. Both doors, people. This dog was freaked out. She needed to get back in. So I've learned not to leave Maya out if there's even a hint of a raindrop coming. (laughs) I've also learned not to leave her in carpeted areas when there's a rainstorm or thunderstorm. I had to get new carpeting out of that. Sounds silly, but that's how fearful and paralyzing people can be in times of fear when they don't understand the truth of God's word or the promises that he has for you, the things that he's spoken to you, into your spirit. It's very easy to live in fear of circumstances instead of the truth of his word. And so he's a cupbearer, and he says... uh, You know, why are you so sad? And here's his answer. I was overwhelmed with fear in reply to the king. I don't have much trust with people who are braggadocious, prideful. Because sometimes pride takes you into places that are gonna get you hurt. Nehemiah doesn't have a problem of saying, listen, I was overwhelmed with fear, but it didn't stop my plan of action. People, you you may have some fear in your life, but it doesn't have to stop the plan of action because paralyzing fear will keep you from going. It's it's almost as if you can hear the enemy in your own head saying, go ahead, try it. Watch what I do. You're gonna pay a price for this. It's gonna get bad. I'm gonna throw all of hell at you. That's fine. But Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against us. It may get a little dark. The storm clouds may roll in. But, but remember, he's, he, he doesn't have power. He's, he, oh, he, has, he can deceive and trick and blah, blah, blah. But he no longer has power over you. He only has the power that you give him through your fear. What you submit to is what will have power over you in your life. Which is why God calls you to lay everything at his feet. Because when you lay everything at his feet, he doesn't fill you with fear. He gives you power and sound mind. I think that's what we really need today is is, is sound mind. Because a lot of us are running around like chicken little. The sky is falling. Jesus is coming back. I don't know, but we're all going to die. Well, the truth is, yeah. (laughs) We are all going to die at some point. That is true. The far worse case of, of dying on earth 
A far worse case is, is being paralyzed by fear and not moving into what God has called you to while you're alive. So he's like, I was overwhelmed with the fear, and I replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad where the city of my ancestors are buried, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So Nehemiah is going to use some language that he's going to understand when it comes to ancestors. Because they, they believed in, you know, their ancestors and honoring ancestors and all that kind of thing. And even, uh, even Jewish people believed that there was some type of consciousness in bones. Which is why uh, Joseph would have said, hey, take my bones from here when you go out of bondage and, t- and bury them. Right? I'm not saying it's true. I'm just saying it's what they thought. And so jo- that they would have taken Joseph's bones and, and laid them in the thing. And so uh, other Babylon and uh, Medes and Persians, they would have thought those similar things. So he's using language that will kind of touch the heart maybe of Artaxerxes and the queen that's there, which either is the young queen or the mother queen. They're not really sure of. But the mother queen had a whole lot of influence, the uh, archaeologists say. And it says, you know, so he's using language that he was saying. He's like, listen, my ancestors, the tombs of my ancestors are lying in and uh, it's just disastrous, and the gates are destroyed by fire, and those ancestors are buried or lying in ruins, and all these things are going on, and the king says to him, what is your request? Now, I want to tell you something. I don't think Nehemiah was a slouch in his job. Like Daniel, I, I think he probably had a spirit of excellence upon him. Sometimes it's fear, because if you don't do things right, you know, the Kaya. So you want to do a good job. Worst case in America is you get written up seven or eight times and then maybe they'll fire you for bad behavior. <laughs> but the reality of it is, is they, they're, you know, he's, he's doing a good job, spirit of excellence, all the while carrying a burden on his heart for a nation. See, if, if, if he's a slouch, then he doesn't have favor. If he doesn't have favor, he won't get the requests that he's asking for. They might even ask him, what is your request? He might even say, oh, well, pray about that. <laughs> yeah, tough luck, dude. But I think because he has that excellent spirit, I think because he's called there, I think it's not just God placed him there, but I think it's the favor that he's gained by, and learned by, by doing what he's supposed to do and doing it excellent, with excellence. And he gives him his request, right? And so what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, <laughs> you know, it's like, here we go, Lord. Let me, let me get it all out there. And so he begins, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor, send me to Judea and to the city where my ancestors are buried, that I may rebuild it. That I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take? And when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. And then he's like, if it pleases the king. So he's not just going to go there by himself and see what he can do. When you read the scriptures, this is pre-planned. Because he has an understanding because of what he does in the kingdom. So this is what he's going to say. He's like, "Uh, listen, um, if it pleases the king... (coughs) 
let me have hand letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so, that I, so they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a handwritten letter to Asap, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates and the temple's fortress and the city wall where I live. And the king granted his request, for I was graciously strengthened by my God. And then he goes to the governors and gives them the king's letters. So listen, uh, the governors in those areas were, were not kind to, the, to Jerusalem. They didn't want to see a temple rebuilt. They didn't want to see them established again. And they sure as heck didn't want to see their walls happen. So, and when you look through this and you see what's going on, uh, even when he gets there, they're still coming against them. They're still fighting uh, what the king had already declared that he was supposed to have. And we'll talk about that later. But he has a man with a plan. He has repented, and now he's believing in that change for himself and for the plan that God has called him to do. And, and, and so I want to break this down and, and for you a little bit. I think what he's doing nationally for, for, the, for the nation of Israel is not just a nationalistic thing. I, I, I think it boils itself down to us personally as well, too. See, God still speaks today. He speaks through his word he whispers into your spirit. His sheep know his voice. That, that's what he said. My sheep will know my voice, which means you're going to know if you're his sheep, you're going to understand when the Lord comes and speaks to you and he breaks through in a, in a Kairos moment. And it's because he loves you that he does that. And so it's, sometimes it's like, repent. I think it's, it's Mark chapter 1 when, when Jesus says, hey, repent. Right? For what? For the good news of the gospel. So that idea of repentance is also in the same sentence as the good news. Because the good news is, is that he's come, he's come to save you, sozo, bring you salvation. The word sozo in Greek is not just saving you from hell. It's the restoration of things. It's the salvation of your spirit, your soul, and your body. Like, what do you mean by that? Paul tells you in 1 Thessalonians, what? 5, 23 or 26? Now obey the God of peace. Sanctify your entire spirit, soul, and body. You're created in his image, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sinned. Jesus comes, restores it to you, spirit, soul, and body, and then says when the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within you, sanctification is allowing the spirit that is as connected with your spirit that your, your emotions, your soul, comes under the subjugation of the Holy Spirit in you. And your body, this fearfully and wonderful thing that we have, reaps the benefits of the alignment between the spirit and the soul. His word brings health to your mortal bodies, people. I'm not saying you're going to live forever. I'm not going to say, I, I, we all are going to die at some point. I understand that. But his word is true. His word is real. And when I live in alignment to everything about his word, to what it says about me spiritually, emotionally, and about my body, there's blessing that comes to that. And we'll, we're going to end here. So I want to ask you, what God 
has placed in your heart, has given you a burden for, he's given you a plan for. Say that again. What God has given you a burden for, he's given you a plan for. (laughs) What God has given you a burden for, he's given you a plan for. Don't connect it nationally. Connect it personally. Mothers, God has given you a burden maybe for kids. He hasn't called you to hide in a corner, but he's given you a plan for that. It's not your plan. It's his plan. And his plan is maybe not necessarily talking to them every single moment of life to make sure that they're saved. His plan may be about responding in compassion to hatred that comes towards you because of what you believe. I don't know. But there's a plan for you, for your burden. Whatever he's given you a burden for, he's given you a plan to. And so we, we take that. What are you saying to me? I'm wrestling with stuff that he told me in April of 2020, sitting on my couch. I know it was a Kairos moment. Because I was sitting there, you know, we weren't coming to church. It was the three months where COVID was the plague that will destroy the earth. And if we go to Mars, it'll destroy that too. You know, I... But we're all under this heaviness of, of, of friction and burden. I'm not being silly. My dad died of it. I understand that it's real. We understand that it's real. But Christians don't run from trouble. They run to it with the gospel, the good news, you know. And so anyway, as I was sitting there, I was getting ready to watch something on TV, and, and all of a sudden, right, he broke through in a Kairos moment. It said, Jeremiah chapter 1, 17, I think it was 17. But he comes through with that, right? Ooh, might be able to take, because I started writing it down. I have a whole lot of Bibles, and I read different translations, so I wrote it down in mostly all of them. Yeah, I was right, Jeremiah 117. Now, I'm, I read the Bible, but, you know, if I were to say to you, Mark 11.7, most of you would not come back with da-da-da-da-da-da-da, right? So when he said Jeremiah 117, I'm like, okay, I have no idea what that means, so I'll read it. And I know this was God, because here's what it said. Now get ready. Stand up and tell everything that I command you and do not be intimidated by them or I will cause you to cower before them. Today, I am the one who has made you a fortified city, an iron pillar and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials and its populations. They will fight against you but never prevail over you since I am with you to rescue you. Yeah, right? So I know that it's not, I know that's not a, a crock. You like, you know, like some people are like, oh, pfft, you know, it's a coincidence. <laughs> I'm not betting on coincidence. You going to bet on coincidence? I'm not going to bet on coincidence. There's too much on the line there. So he says this word to me, this Kairos moment where he breaks through with me in shorts and a t-shirt, getting ready to watch something on Netflix, just going to relax. Boom. You know the first thing that happens? Fear of the Lord. It's different from fear of the culture. 
when God speaks to you and this is a sobering thing and you're like, oh man, my pride didn't kick in and say, oh yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to give you both barrels. No way, man. I was scared spitless because I knew what he was calling me to. And I don't think it's just about me. I, I think it's a, I think it's something that, you know, he's calling all shepherds to. So I don't think it was just like, I'm the only one in the world he gave this message to. He may, I may be the only one he gave it that way to, but I think he's speaking it to a lot of people. And so as I was wrestling over this, I was like, this scares me, God. Because you're telling me not to be intimidated of people, which means there are going to be people that are going to be coming. They're going to try and intimidate you. <laughs> they're going to come against you. It's like all hell may be released against you with what the word that the Lord has given you. And yes... But like I said earlier, that doesn't mean that the gates of hell will prevail against me. I will prevail in the word that God has given me because his power and his strength are on me. He doesn't give me something that I can do that I can accomplish in my own strength. He gives me something to do that I have to rely on him daily to strengthen me in the fight and for the burden of the people that he's given me. So he gave me that Kairos moment. This is 2020. Now it's 2022. And I'm still like, okay, let's put this on the circle. Because for a lot of times, I was just like, what does this mean, God? You know, what does this mean? Where is this going to? What are you saying so that I can repeat it? So I put that on the learning circle. What is he saying? Right? Let's get somebody to help discuss and get some people to help with this. Let's repent of our behavior that hasn't been that way. Now, what is the action? Because like I said, there's no repent without belief. And the belief is the action to what I've repented from. If I'm going to go into all the world and preach the gospel, which I'm not talking that I'm leaving to go anywhere else, but if that's the command, then I've got to make plan with the Lord's direction of how that's going to happen. So I've got to sit down with more than just me. I need to talk with other people that I trust about what does believe mean to the word that God gave. Hold me accountable to what we believe, what God has said, and in his timing, act. Because there's favor on you for what he's given to you. And you live by promise, you'll access it because he'll give you favor to go along with it. But if you live in fear, you could miss your time. Not talking about salvation, but you could miss your time. Because it's months before, while he's praying and fasting, before he's able to release it to what he's got for the king. There's months between there. So there's timing. And when I get the kairos, there's, there's a timing between I'm released in belief and action. So once I get what I need to repent of by what I wasn't doing or whatever, and because I'm not repenting from horrible sinfulness, I'm repenting from either behavior or something that maybe I've ignored, which is sin. There's a timing to, of preparation that comes before I'm released to do what God has called me to do. And in that time, you can either, you can either prepare yourself or you can waste time and maybe miss it. And I, I, I think the worst thing, I'm not talking heaven and hell here. I think the thing that scares me the most is I go to the gates of heaven and yeah, I'm going in because salvation is based on Jesus and him alone. 
I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to heaven, pretty sure, because <laughs> it's set by him, not by me. But I don't want to go there not accomplishing all that he's had for me to do. Not because I don't think I'll get crowns. Because my heart is being broken because I, I wonder, do I care enough about the things that he cares enough that I will sacrifice my own will and my own pleasures for the king and for his love? Because even though I'm unfaithful to him on times, he's never unfaithful to me. Which is why Romans 8 was so today in Sunday school about his love. I don't want to get to the gates where he welcomes me in and I have to apologize for a whole bunch of stuff because I was unwilling to submit my heart and because I was fearful. I'm getting to the point, and please, this is not bragging. Honestly, I'd rather die on a foreign field pursuing him than live to be 100 years old, comfortable in the culture. And I'm asking him, even, I've just turned 50. Oh, no, I'm going to be 51. Lord, help me. <laughs> Whew, wow. Whew, time flies. But I'm turning 51 in April. And I'm uh, 51, I, by statistics, I'm more than half gone. I don't know how much time I have left on this earth. But whatever I have, I want, to pers- I want to spend in pursuit of what the king has for me to do. Not out of legalism, not out of fear, but out of a loving, organic relationship filled with love. So that when I leave this earth, whenever it is, and he says to me, well done, good and faithful servant, I'll be able to say, thank you. <laughs> thank you, Father. That I've spent every last breath or inch of it pursuing him and his purpose and plan to see to give his name glory throughout my entire life. I can add nothing else to that. So next week he's going to start rebuilding walls. And I'm asking him to rebuild the walls in me as well. Tear down the walls of the enemy that have surrounded the heart for so long. See, at 51, I've been going to church since, well, I was born into it. Brief period in the 90s when I rebelled, but I, I was born and raised in the church, so I know Christianese and I know how to say something without it really being true in my own heart. And I'm to that point where I'm asking God, I said, listen, I don't want there to be. Paul would say it, listen, I, I want to live this stuff so when I preach, I'm not disqualified because of how I live, right? That's not, that's not a one moment thing. That's a, that's a progress of laying my heart continually before the Lord and say, search me, know me. Don't let me get away with stuff, not because you're angry, but because we have this loving relationship and I, I want my life to please you. That is dangerous. But the benefits of it, of a life that's surrendered to him, are better than any benefit package you could get from any company. Because their package ends when you die. His package begins. Thanks for joining with us today. 
And if that message touched your heart in some way, please let us know by emailing us at info.kingdomlife at aol.com. You can also find us and reach out to us on Facebook. And we hope that you will join us again for another podcast from Kingdom Life Community Church.